You're listening to Podcast on Fire. It's Asian cinema in a podcast. With your hosts, the magnificent trio of Stu, Ken, and Mike. My name is Ronald L. Strong. I am a filmmaker, writer, and film historian, uh, specializing pretty much in exploitation and uh, I guess what you could call grindhouse films. Uh, Been a film fanatic. Film fan doesn't quite do justice, but film fanatic since I was five years old. And we'll get into more detail on that as we go along. So... Well, it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly a life uh, a life uh, worth living. Uh, being a fan of exploitation and grindhouse, and uh, uh, definitely monster movies, kaiju. Which Absolutely, fits, which fits very well into that category. So, what was your introduction to kaiju, and when? Actually, to be perfectly honest, the first film I remember seeing, in fact, vivid memories, it was actually the original uh, American release of Godzilla: King of the Monsters. And uh, you know the uh, <laughs> the cherished Raymond Burr edition. Uh, it was uh, one of those uh, late sixty even you know Saturday afternoons. Uh, we used to have a television program up here in Los Angeles called Million Dollar Movie, and they would uh, run a particular feature all week long. And then on Saturdays they would double bill this with uh, the film from the previous week. So, you know, you'd be able to watch this particular film all week long. And then on weekend, actually catch a double feature of what they showed before. And my introduction was actually watching with my parents on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, believe it or not, the, uh, <laughs> the docudrama, the Al Jolson story. And directly after that, Godzilla King of the Monsters, when I was seven years old. And uh, yeah, so there's uh, the dichotomy of my existence: uh, actors in black, <laughs> actors in blackface, and men in rubber monster costumes. So <laughs> I it, was corrupted from the get-go. It it all seems to oddly fit for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. There, speaking of, therefore, that uh, version of uh, Godzilla, Raymond Burr version, uh, I saw it f- for the first time recently when I saw the classic media DVD. Uh, mm-hmm. The very excellent classic media DVD that deserves every plug it can get, and uh, I I I found it to be obviously an inferior version, but uh, still not as bad as the concept of cutting and pasting a person into an already existing movie uh, could be. So I mean, I've seen a lot of ninja movies that uses that concept very badly, but very entertaining. So yeah, but, some but, of the Joseph Lye films, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, what's your view on 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 the Raymond Burr cut <laughs> now, now? Now that uh, I mean, t- time has it been that uh, it's been fairly kind to it, in my opinion. Uh, yes, it has. It has. Uh, I think that the American version holds up to a certain extent because it does bring. Uh, well, at, you know, at the time, historically, it did bring that genre and that culture to Western shores, which we had never really experienced before, mm-hmm. at least on such a grand scale. Uh, Joseph Levine, when he brought the film over, uh, you know, it was a rather brilliant move to actually Americanize it to that level and give it that perspective of, you know, an American in Japan uh, actually reporting on it. And it made... Uh, it made it acceptable to a you know to a Western point of view to to that extent. Of course, there was a lot of you know 
a lot of the nuances, a lot of the subtleties that were lost in the translation, mm. you know, obviously, but still, you know, it made it adaptable. And surprisingly, uh, director Kenneth Morse, <laughs> you know, uh, really did not do any good films before or after that. <laughs> and what was really remarkable was that the cutting and the, you know, the editing and the, uh, the, the doubles that were used for the film were actually remarkably well put together. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, the footage didn't quite match all together. I mean, you had this raw Japanese footage that had obviously been projected several times. <laughs> and then you had this fresh U.S. footage that was, you know, spliced into it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the cutting and the juxtaposition of all of those scenes actually worked. You actually believe that Raymond Burr was actually talking to Emiko in those scenes in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know... Yeah, and again, as a, as a young as a young child and as a teenager later, seeing it as many times as I had, uh, the film still has a charm and an innocence behind it that uh, no American film other than *Beast from the Twenty Thousand Fathoms* really had. Would it be fair to to say because this was the one feeling I got from watching the American version of the film, not knowing much about uh, sci-fi or monster movies of the time? But it, it it would be fair to say that they tried to uh, match it to what an audience in America at that time were expecting out of out of something like that. You see, uh, they, they basically adapted it to to the time and its audience. Uh, would that be fair to say? I don't think that would be you know quite fair because uh, mm-hmm. you know it's like matching it to what an, an American audience would expect because there really wasn't any expectations there. Right. Uh, you know, as far as just a complete exploitation, you know, a money making process. What they had was a giant monster destroying cities. And with the you know with that particular Japanese film, uh, the devastation and the destruction was on such a large scale, which had not been done on an American film up to that point. Uh, you know, we had some small scale dis- you know destruction and such. Uh, most notably, some of the Harry House and stuff like Earth versus the Flying Saucers, you know, where the capital is being destroyed. But uh, as far as uh, that level of destruction and miniature work, uh, the only thing that we here in the West that we really had to go with was some of the George Powell films, you know, like When Worlds Collide and War of the Worlds and such, which were, you know, extravagant productions at the time. And, you know, just, you know, some of those effects were stunning and, you know, remarkable. And so on the exploitation level of it, yeah, here was something that was being, being done on that level, but was distinctly foreign. And so what they had to do was like, Tone down some of the, you know, perceived anti-Americanism blame for the H bomb, and then and then again make it sympa- you know, give a sympathetic character that you know that you know Westerners could look at. So, uh, you know, seeing what, you know, there were you know some political aspects to it that were brought in, you know, to soften that blow. But at the same time, I don't think it was really, uh, you know. You know, looking at it, you know, I don't think the marketing or the, you know, the uh, expertise in that was like, oh, what are our Americans going to accept? I don't think that, you know, pro- producers at that time, they didn't have those, you know, committees or, you know, those questionnaires that were out there like they have now. They don't yeah. have, uh, you know, there weren't any preview audiences at the time. Yeah. So it was sort of a catch as catch can thing. But, you know, it was just savvy producers and, you know, some, you know, some savvy writers that went in there and actually worked at it. And what was surprising is that they brought in 
a lot of that Jap, you know, the Japanese mythology and all that. I mean, you know, when you had uh, Raymond Burr's character on the island and looking at these natives that are, you know, worshiping, you know, the god, the creature, and then there's that little line of overdubbing that's in there. And they say Godzilla. You know, you hear this one native saying Godzilla, and he's like overdubbed onto the scene. The sound is a little bit too drastic, too clean to be from the original. But it's like, see, that's what they're talking. It's their god, god. You know, it's their this mythical creature, Godzilla. It's like, oh my gosh. Well, what is this? And so, you know, it's a great introduction. But it's like, you know, as far as the original question is like, did they go out of their way to America? You know, to Adapted to Western taste, I don't think so because there's so much Japanese flavor and feel in the film,、mm. and and you know a little bit of that culture. I mean, you know the, I mean, if they were going to do an, you know, an Americanized version of it, Sirozawa would not have committed suicide. <laughs> ah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So you know that's that's、uh, that's to me has always been the argument. They Americanized it, but they still kept it distinctly Japanese, and I think that was probably one of the bravest things that those producers did with that film.、Mm. Do, do do you think that bravery was you know they tapped into that because they bought the film cheap or based on that time standard of the time the movie was expensive, medium cheap to acquire or? Well, it's like if you look at what.、Uh, Uh, Hugo Grimaldi tried to do with the、uh, direct sequel to King of the Monsters、uh, with、uh, Godzilla Rages Again,、mm-hmm. bought you know bought the rights to the film, brought it over, and they were actually you know they shipped the suits over here to the you know to the West, and you know they were actually going to refilm scenes and set the entire action in San Francisco's Chinatown. Really? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is re- rather interesting. One of one of my.、Uh, Uh, one of my contacts introduced me to Bob Burns, and he related the story to me about how they actually, when they were working on an old、uh, American International film, Invasion of the、uh, Saucermen,、mm. they actually came across the crates that were on the stage, opened them up, and you know he and、uh, gosh、uh, Paul Blart.、Uh, Paul Blattel、uh, actually found the Godzilla and Angula suits <laughs> in these crates, and you know they took them out and all this. They're looking at them, it's like, oh my gosh, these are amazing. And it's like, and Paul Blattel was you know the creature maker back in the fifties. I mean,、uh-huh. he did all those Corman films and all that, and he was just stunned. You know, it's just like, I mean, you know, they were basically wetsuits that were remodified and sculpted and you know carved out, you know, of, you know of carpet foam and foam rubber,、mm. and you know he was just amazed at this. And you know they just figured that you know the Godzilla suit was basically built for a man that was pretty much Paul's size, and Paul was only five foot, you know, five foot eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it's like you know an American stuntman could not have worn that suit. But as it was, is that you know when they got the suits and all this, and then they tried to budget it up, they decided that it wasn't going to be cost effective, and you know there was that whole litigate you know、uh, supposed litigation it's like well do we own the rights can we use the name Godzilla or is that owned by you know Joseph Levine and Jewel Enterprises、right. or is that owned by Toho and so they you know Warner Brothers just said scrap it we'll redub it we'll recut it and you know so Grimaldi went out there and just recut the film drastically、uh, took out most of the music and everything else and just basically did a You know, a, a hack. You know, a hack editing job and put together this film as best they could. You know, without any new footage.、Mm. And you know, I mean, they sort of borrowed、uh, the idea from、uh, the King Brothers,、uh, Amer- you know, English release of Rodan. You know, where they had a narrator. Right. You know, 
that basically talk through the whole film. And, you know, as, and again, you know, it was a way of bringing, you know, it, you know, that it was, a, you know, a cheap step of westernization. It was like, okay, we got a foreign culture, so we need somebody to tell the audience what's happening as it's happening. And which was always irritating with those with those two films in particular, because they'd be talking to you and telling you what's happening on screen as it's going on. So it's like, it's very evident early in the film uh, <laughs> when he's in his airplane. I was flying my airplane. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. And I was moving my hand towards the gear to towards my <laughs> stick there, and it's very like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. Oh yes, very much so. I mean, it's, it's very simplistic. I mean, you know, that film particularly was pretty much aimed to the you know to the teenage you know to the drive-in crowd. Mm. So there really wasn't much thought put into it. It's like you know, you know, paste it up there as quick as we could uh, with uh, the American release of Godzilla: Phrase Again. I mean, they grabbed all of the stock footage that was basically from World War Two <laughs> and threw it up there and basically had to mat out <laughs> shots of uh, a Japanese council meeting that actually had Nazi swastikas up. <laughs> Oops. You know, it's just like, oh my God. Or what we thought were Nazi swastikas were actually Buddhist symbols. That's they, you know, right. But like they crossed, you know, they blotted them out because, oh no, people think that this is Nazi stuff. It was like, so there's a lot of humorous stuff in, in some of that footage. But, it's, but having said but, that, having that as an alternative cut to the Japanese is quite wonderful because it's uh, oh. it, it's a wonderful uh, uh, time capsule in a way. That's what that's what they were trying to do, trying to bring it out to mm -hmm. the market. And I'm totally fascinated by that uh, by that stuff. But always have you know an option to see what the original was like and uh, well, never I never a hack job for ever ever. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, having grown up on dubbed films, I, I grew to dislike them. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, but as getting older, it's like there's a certain nostalgic quality to them because that's how you were introduced introduced to a, a lot of this, a lot of those films. I mean, you know, so even some of the European, uh, you know, the Giallo pictures and you know, just all of these different things. It's like uh, there's certain things that you know that were brought here to the states that were altered more than a lot, mm. and and it was just like. You know, going back and seeing those, you know, original edited versions, it has a certain nostalgic quality. It's like, you know, well, this was the naivety that we were introduced to, you know. And so, yeah, there's a there, there was a certain innocence, you know, back then in the 50s and the 60s when all of those films were being being imported. Mm -hmm. That was just uh, you know there was a certain charm to it, and of course you know they're they're all catering to the youth market, you know to, you know to the family market, right? And so just adapting them to that was rather interesting, <laughs> you know. Would there, therefore this first exposure would it, would it be a constant exposure from from that point, or would it be like a few years until it really got going for you? Uh, basically, it's like uh, the original Godzilla was like a mainstay on television when I was growing up. I mean, it's like it, they, you know, these different channels would run it like every six months. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it became a mainstay. And it was like, it was just like, oh, where's the next one? Where's the, where's the next one? Uh, when God, when Gigantus the Fire Monster, or, you know, i.e. Godzilla Raids Again, mm -hmm. was finally aired on television here, uh, I was drastically, you know, you know, demonstrably disappointed with that because, uh, you know, uh, again, Saburia's uh, thought to undercrank all of the monster action yeah. really, you know, gave you know gave away the whole you know men in suit aspect, and I found that you know tremendously disappointing. It's just like you know, there was something about the original Godzilla, and it wasn't you know I didn't notice it until later in life, but it wasn't the realism, but it was the sense of uh, weight 
that the creature had, mm-hmm. and you know, just and just that depth. I, I you know can't think of a better word to put it, but there was a certain uh, a certain aspect to that film that just had a gravity to it. And then when Gigantus came out, and suddenly it didn't have that. You know, it just it just seemed almost cartoonish to an extent. <clears throat> and of course. In between those two films, you know, we'd seen uh, you know a lot of the American films like you know Unknown Island, you know, with its uh, balsa wood dinosaur, you know, men in dinosaur suits, and you know the Land Unknown, the Universal big production where it had the T Rex head that was <laughs> three times larger than it should have been. <laughs> I mean, marvelous sculptures, marvelous you know suits and effects and all, but they just looked mechanical they didn't look lifelike that was the difference there was something about godzilla that seemed alive mm. you know and that and to to my mind is like you know the kaju films even you know the worst of the bunch there was something about them that was uh believable and uh i guess aesthetically pleasing you know much like some of harry hausen's work so how how much of the movies that came after Godzilla Raids again, uh, do you know were altered to the extent that they inc- uh, inserted new actors? Because I heard a few examples of their, their, them shooting new scenes for uh, other monster movies from Toho or what have you. Basic, to the best of my knowledge, that didn't happen. Uh, there were, you know, after uh, Gigantus, uh, they really didn't add, there was no adding to American scenes. Uh, the Probably, you know, the last one that did that was probably King Kong versus Godzilla, where Universal and John Beck, producer John Beck, uh, basically, you know, stripped the Japanese version and added all of these different characters. And uh, everybody has great disdain for the American version of right. King Kong versus Godzilla because it, it was such a juvenile rewriting of the original Japanese script. Uh, the the original Japanese version is just it's just a charming satire, <laughs> and and that just seemed to have been completely lost on the American producers, and so uh, everybody's uh, fave moment in the American version of that film is where uh, uh, James Yagi and I can't can't remember the other actor's name, but they're doing a discussion on you know King Kong and Godzilla, and King Kong has you know has this large brain, and then you know they show you know Godzilla and they say and Godzilla's got the si- brain the size of a pea. <laughs> it's just <laughs> and it's just like it's hilarious, and of course then they're you know discussing Godzilla and all this, and they're holding up a children's dinosaur book, <laughs> wow. and you know say that's saying that Godzilla is like a cross between a T-Rex and a Stegosaurus. How that biologically could have taken place is anybody's <laughs> guess. But to those producers, it was like, well, you know, Godzilla's got these fins on his back and so does the Stegosaurus. Well, let's put them together. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, you know. <laughs> did, yeah, so like, um, uh, not having seen that yet, but uh, did they change uh, the outcome of the fight in the American version? No, by, by no, okay. that... Uh, and actually, in King Kong vs. Godzilla, that was one of the, the, the great myths on that film, is that they actually filmed two separate endings, and they never did. But then uh, that was perpetrated by Forrest J. Ackerman and Famous Monsters of Filmland Magazine, in that uh, in the American version, King Kong won the fight, and in the Japanese version, Godzilla won. And so it became this 
you know, this huge quest for all of us growing up in the 60s to see the Japanese version, you know, to see Godzilla win. Because we all hated the Kong suit. (laughs) Everybody hated the Kong suit. I mean, we thought it was just like, it was like somebody had, you know, basically sculpted something out of, you know, just foam rubber and then taken an iron to it (laughs) and mashed it in. It was, it was just probably, it was probably, uh, one of uh, Suburia's worst uh, creature designs. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, and they just didn't have, uh, you know, that technology and that skill at the time to do, you know, any sort of sculpting or modeling. I mean, those things were pretty much scraped out of, uh, you know, out of foam rubber. Right. And so, I mean, for that, it was like, yeah, that was a remarkable work. But, you know, it just didn't hold up to what was, you know, available at the time. So, yeah, everybody looks at the Kong suit and it's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Aged Sarai and his team certainly managed to pull off uh, uh, a lot of uh, that stuff better, you know, with the um, oh, w- w- with the perspective, uh, force perspective, and rear screen projection, and just matching uh, matching live and uh, miniature. I mean, the, they became the masters of that eventually. Oh yeah, it was like it was right around that time that I th- that I believe that Suburia actually got Toho to buy him the, an optical printer. That's right. And and King Kong versus Godzilla actually had you know it's not completely successful, but for a first attempt, it's an amazing shot, and that's where Kong is unconscious, you know, in the middle of Tokyo at the Diet building. And you've got the soldiers basically tying all the balloons around him. And they've got these little blue screen soldiers that are, you know, you know, running across his chest and around the foreground and all that, tying these things up. And it's like, you know, it's just a loop of footage, but it's like, it's remarkably inventive. You know, and it's just like, wow, there was, you know, that was a challenging shot to try to pull off. And it just shows, it just shows the, you know, the the courage and the uh, you know the daring that Suburia had as an effects artist, and that he would do something that he really wasn't versed in, but he would make these valiant, valiant and courageous attempts to pull these things off. And with each successive film, they, you know he just got better and better at it. You know, right. Um, so you 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 touch upon this a little bit, but uh, for the second question, uh, what why does the kaiju genre specifically speak to you or what does it represent to you or what does it do to you as a view, uh, what does it do to you as a viewer well if that, if I think, that makes any sense no it, it perfectly does it's like uh, a lot of people have looked into this and you know and you know valued critics have said you know all well, these are diatribes against you know the nuclear age and all that and all that's there but i think for me personally they were pure escapism Mm-hmm. Just pure unadul- unadulterated escapism. Uh, I mean, you you had you know this adventure, you had this excitement, and you had monsters that you couldn't see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain magic and otherworldliness to them because again, you were looking at a, a you know a different culture, different nation, and those films allowed you to look. You know, I mean, these were probably the first exposure that we you know that we had as westerners to other cultures that actually dealt with the culture Mm -hmm. Um, you know we'd have italian films coming over and spanish films and german films and british films and they didn't we didn't really tap into that culture you know the japanese films introduced us to a culture that was completely foreign to us westerners Mm you know I mean, the idea of sitting on the floor when you're eating, it's like, what the hell is that about? You know, it's like, it's just, you know, it's just these things didn't make sense. But they were shown without any explanation and just as as they were. And this, you know, to me, it was like this 
this eye-opening expression in in other worlds and other cultures and other people and it's like it was probably the first uh exposure to non-prejudicial views that i think that westerners ever really had on other cultures mm -hmm. you know every other films out there they always had you know especially in western films they'd always refer to other cultures as you know with you know the nicknames you you had the japs so you had this you had that so forth and so on there was always a derogatory term to that uh the japanese films didn't do that you know and they just presented people as they were and that was rather unique you know at least you know in in those 60s films that you know that sort of changed somewhat with the 70s and the 80s films, you know, when they started bringing in other cultures and all that, and then you notice that there was sort of slight amounts of racism there. Right. But, but uh, you know, in those early films, you didn't notice that. You know, it's just like, you know, you saw there's a certain Japanese attitude and there's a certain Western attitude, but they could still come together. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was rather unique, you know. And so, you know, you had this cultural aspect to those films, but, you know, again, for a child growing up in the 50s and 60s, it was the monsters that was all important. And there were so many of those that were popping out of Toho and, you know, and all the other studios in, in Japan at the time, all of those sci-fi films that, uh, you know, like Warning from Space and some of those other things that were just like abstract fantasy sci-fi flicks. I mean, it's like guys in giant starfish costumes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it got more but, uh, more elaborate uh, the further we got away from the original movie, the more, the more color, literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the thing... You know, the thing is, is that, you know, we had all of the other imports here as well. I mean, we had, uh, uh, I can't think of the original Japanese names, but we had, uh, you know, uh, some of the films that Shintoho did, uh, the superhero serials like uh, uh, Starman and uh, uh, Prince of Space. And these were basically, you know, episodic things that had been cut together and marketed here to American television. And these things were distinctly Japanese, both in their cutting and their timing. And those were probably the first films that any of us saw martial arts on screen, right. <laughs> you know. And so it was like, oh, my God, oh my God what, was, what the hell was that? He's kicking this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, so, and, uh, and no, cutting, <laughs> uh, no cutting or dubbing can ever take away from that. It's a very good point that these are distinctly foreign or, or, or Japanese. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Absolutely. So it's very, very comforting now that you look back on it that that came through immediately that it wasn't oh, yeah. uh, it wasn't dismissed as yet another uh, yet another production that we've seen mm -hmm. dozens of times already absolutely absolutely i mean it's like you know when <laughs> i think one of the prime examples of uh, that that dichotomy that's in there is that i mean you you look at this and then you look at suddenly you're seeing an american film in 1964 with mickey rooney as the japanese neighbor upstairs <laughs> and you know, you know, with the buck teeth and the slanted eyes and the and the you know the coke bottle glasses and it's just it's this incredibly horrendous offensive image mm. you know but it's like i mean that's what you know the typical western audience saw asians as yeah. and so and so you know we'd see that you know we'd see you know marlon brando you know hop skipping around you know in sayonara and you know these were just like well that's not real because the guy in this in, in mothra didn't behave like that <laughs> you know and so you know we just you know there were these two two you know competing thoughts that were out there and it's like, uh, yeah, I always looked at, you know, I've always looked as like, 
you know, the Japanese films were, they were the first wave in Westerners being able to accept other cultures and other people on a purely equal level. Mm-hmm. And, and this sort of opened the door for, you know, for Sidney Poitier, you know, in the later 60 films, you know, it's like when we, and then of course, you know, uh, James Whitmore in the film Black Like Me. I don't believe that a film like Black Like Me could have been made without this introduction to you know the Japanese films coming in. You know, was, you know, this, just my argument there. Well, and uh, I think it's a good argument, uh, and and it came via a natural major exposure TV. Yes. Uh, Uh, oh, absolutely! So no, no one needed to uh, <laughs> search search very deeply. They they were naturally exposed to it, and uh, it sounded like uh, which is yes. uh, uh, which is very comforting as well to to know that uh, uh, you ne- you never needed to force it on on an audience uh, in no. uh, in that regard. So uh, no, well. that was always the fun. I still remember is like, and of course you know the films did play theatrically. I was like one of my biggest thrills. Uh, I believe I was. Uh, eight years old and my parents and I were coming back from the store and there was this huge billboard that was uh, just in downtown LA and it was like it was just one of those huge billboards and it was promoting the release of Mothra uh. <laughs> and it was like I mean just like oh my god <laughs> you know and it was like oh you know it's just I mean It just Mothra for some reason on that poster looks so threatening, so imposing, and everything else. Right, and it was just like, oh my gosh, and you know the film was just you know the complete opposite. I mean, it was just probably one of the most charming and fanciful films I think I'd ever seen, and it was like, and it was probably the first monster film ever made that was distinctly spiritual. Right, right. You know, and it's just like, and so I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, so I was like, uh, the advertisement didn't quite match what the film was, but it was still a wonderful, wonderful experience. And seeing that, you know, that was my first indoctrination in Japanese films on the big screen. Right. And, you know, I, uh, I can't express what a thrill that was to see that as a kid. Uh, to, to our audience, we should specify that this is their a movie that literally is called Mothra. It's not Godzilla vs. Mothra. This is no, no, movie. it is the original Mothra, yes. Uh, which uh, I, I I've yet to see, but uh, it, it's easy to become a fan of. I dare say the character of Mothra because uh, that monster has so much character. It's a kind, it's a kind yes. monster. It's a yeah. she, and uh, I, I I've always said that. I, in as fun as destroy all monsters is, I, I find it really heartbreaking <laughs> to see Mothra being controlled and uh, into doing yeah. evil things, uh, standing in yes. front of trains. <laughs> it seems it's so out of character for Mothra. Exactly. I mean, it, and, but it's like, and it's just, and that's one of the arguments I always had. The first shot you have of Mothra, and it's like, it to, for some reason, this this inexpressive little rubber puppet as it's you know, on there on Monster Island and it comes over and there's that red gas that goes blowing out and it just like makes that squeak and then just turns and wong, you, know, <laughs> you know scrabbles away and it's just like oh man let Mothra swim you know it's just like it's just it's just it's such a sad moment and and, you know, and, there, like, and there you have the effect of you know we're going to talk about people dismissing the filmmaking but when you immediately Are involved in, yeah. in that regard, and you're you're not being dismissive when you when 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 you're saying that you're immediately involved. I mean, all credit to to the technical expertise and and, and the director, obviously, in Ashura Honda, that mm-hmm. that it, that they can that they can bring it from the, the rubber suit to uh, rubber suit aspect to audience involvement. 
Well, admittedly, uh, you know, kaiju films, I, I think Stephen King said it best. It's like, when you go to a horror film, or any sort of fantasy or sci-fi film, there's a certain uh, level of, of, of acceptable disbelief that you have to take with you. Sure. You know, I mean, you know, more so than, you know, than, you know, than say a Harry Harryhausen film. I mean, even like Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, as fantasy as an abstract and unbelievable as that is, uh, you can accept that because, you know, because of the stop motion animation and it, and it, it sells its fantasy. Right. But the thing with the, uh, the kaiju films is that they take it as a matter of fact approach. I mean, the fantasy's still there, but it's like, again, you have this cultural separation. Uh, I had friends in high school, and, you know, a couple of them still today, that look upon those films with a huge level of disdain. And they said, that's unbelievable. And I, you know, and I, my, I go back to look at them, it's like, so any of the creatures in Outer Limits were believable? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, if you're just looking at the effects... Yeah, of course they are, and and there's yeah. no way to do those effects believably without completely bankrupting the entire economy of the nation. <laughs> you know, and, so, and and you still can't uh, do that today, despite the technology uh, being oh. as advanced as it is. You you still have to go in with that same uh, approach that you described, uh, Stephen King. Uh, yeah, uh, Stephen King yeah. did. So I mean, you you're you're never going to uh, yeah. get to that point where everything is realistic. Oh. Absolutely not, and I think that's the that's the magic of film because it, you look at film. I mean, even if you're looking at you know just cinema verite, film by its very nature is unrealistic, because as soon as you've captured a photograph, you've captured either a point of view of an event and a limited point of view of of, of, of an event, and so film is is inherently unrealistic, because it's all set up, it's angled, it's lit, and it's presented in a specific artistic way and so just by that by that level of it it's like you can argue that all film is unbelievable and unrealistic but on that same level you know you've got uh, a different gradation on you know that level of acceptability and, and believability you know it's like you yeah absolutely you can accept that you know well the zombies are coming back from the dead because look at this you know night of the living dead it's mm. it's you know it's 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 jarring it looks like the news i'm watching you know yeah, from exactly. vietnam and all this but then again then you can go back and look at latitude zero and say well this is like a cartoon oh mm. i get it you know it's like i mean it's a different level and so, you know, they're not the same film, and they shouldn't be, you know, because they're telling two different types of stories. You know, I mean, at the same time, yeah, I mean, you look at the, like, uh, the, the Majin series of films. Right. These, these are remarkable films in that they have this incredible depth of character to them and this remarkable drama. And when the creature, you know, when, when the god Majin finally materializes, it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like, I mean you're brought into it and it's like and those effects work and i think what what helps with majin is that they kept his scale very low he's like really only 10 foot taller than the average man that's right <laughs> and so you know the scale was not quite you know it wasn't 50 meters or something like mm. this so but it it brought him down to a more approachable level but those films were just like remarkably frightening and, and disturbing on a level that uh, the other kaiju films didn't have. Because here you had a vengeful creature. <laughs> you know, yeah. this, 
you know, and that's that was what was so unique about Majin because it actually dealt with this idea of vengeance, you know, from something otherworldly, and that was rather unique for the time. It's kind of fun. The structure of uh, Daimajin is uh, <coughs> it's very apparent. You know, very evil people doing very evil things. Gee, I mm-hmm. wonder if they're gonna get their comeuppance. But it, it's oh, yeah. uh, it, it's the most satisfying comeuppance I, I <laughs> I've seen in a while. And and just, uh, to to not spoil for uh, spoil it for anyone, but uh, anyone will know the moment in the first Daimajin <laughs> yeah. film that that yes. is that is the comeuppance, <laughs> and it's uh, totally memorable for it. Uh, to, to throw the proper pun out there, I think you nailed it. Indeed. <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll come back a little bit to to Daimajin uh, later, but I'll, I'll I'll move on to speaking of the multiple movies that, that you mentioned and, and series that came out of, came out of Toho and other studios. Did 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 you find it tough to keep up, or was it just natural? You you just were exposed naturally, and and you realized that you had kept up over the years. That it it was. I think the benefit that we had here in the West was again, and I'll, I'll mention it again, was Forrest J. Ackerman's magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmland. Uh, he exposed all of us, you know, all of the, you know, every kid that read that magazine. He would always keep us up to date on what was happening. Uh, you know, I remember the he actually put in a full-page photograph of Son of Godzilla. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, we were just, I mean, just a black and white photo, still frame of Minya sitting on Godzilla's shoulders, you know, in that jungle setting. And <laughs> we were just like ecstatic. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, what's this coming out? And then uh, three years later, it showed up on American television. Never got a theatrical release here. You know, thank you, Walter Reed. You guys did a wonderful job of not promoting anything. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it showed up on American television. And it's like, I mean, as disappointing as the film was, it was still charming because, you know, we got to see something that we had not seen before. And that was the level of puppetry in that film that was just as unbelievably, you know, taken up to the next level. Mm-hmm. I mean, the giant mantises and then, the, you know, Kamunga, or as named in the American version, Spiga. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let's simplify this for the kids. Let's just call them Spiga, because then they'll understand that spider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a mighty fine connection there. Mighty <laughs> yeah, fine. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> the giant mantises were called guy mantises. It's like, oh, my but, God. Yeah, it was just like very simple. But again, the film had a certain charm and innocence to it. And as, as silly and as... as you know, as degrading as Minya was to the character and concept of Godzilla, the film still works. But uh, going through like uh, the different Rodan films, I guess they made uh, several and uh, and other monsters. Uh, you never felt it was tough to keep up. It was always fun to be no, exposed to whatever. Not at all. It's like the the benefit about living in Los Angeles is like all of those films played here at one point or another. Right. Uh, and, you know, back in the 70s, we had the added advantage, advantage of having revival houses. Mm-hmm. You know, we had theaters that just specialized in doing, you know, monthly programs of, you know, different series of films or whatever else. Uh, big thrill that I had is like uh, there was one theater out here in uh, the San Fernando Valley, and they used to have a... You know, every summer they would have a fantasy, sci-fi, and horror 
summer spectacular and it would be like a nine-week program <laughs> and they just run double features every day a different double feature wow. and on weekends it would be a triple feature and on this one particular weekend they actually ran the original mothra ghidra the three-headed monster oh, yeah. and just dis- and destroy all monsters wow and and i can't it was hilarious it's like you know we got there for the screening and the theater i mean this was a 1100 seat theater Mm-hmm. The theater was sold out. <laughs> wow. We we had to wait. I had to wait six hours for the second showing to get in to see the movies. <laughs> I could die happily watching a triple bill of that. Yep. Wow. Yeah, uh, so, certainly we, may, maybe people would argue against Destroy All Monsters, but if you have like Mothra and Gita, the three-headed monster, which is still my favorite kaiju flick, uh, Uh, watching that I think one of the first I watched and watching the famous monster talk scene (laughs) was so mind blowing that uh, and when watching it again uh, just a few months ago uh, it was equally mind blowing it was very very lovely to to see the monster speak to each other and be very childish yeah exactly uh, Exactly. very stubborn and it's just totally wonderful to see that on a big screen uh, I mean uh I think that was one of the other charms of the Japanese film is like, I mean, since uh, basically since uh, Gigantus or Godzilla Raids again, they started to humanize the monsters. They started actually actually added all these little human qualities to them. And of course, it, it went too far. You know, I mean, by the time you got to, uh, you know, Smog Monster with Godzilla wiping his mouth every three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Have you found yourself... Uh, defending, you know, kaiju filmmaking technically, for instance, uh, uh, because obviously, technically, Toho and Eiji Tsuburaya were quite technically accomplished. Uh, yeah, but... and I, I, I used to, I, I don't anymore, uh, because it's like, I mean, it, it's sort of like trying to convert somebody to Mormonism. You know, <laughs> if they don't buy it, they don't buy it. Right. <laughs> you know. Of course. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just like, I mean, you're not going to convince anybody if they don't want to. Uh, the thing that I, I do when I talk about it is that uh, take away, you know, try to take away your, precon- your, your preconceptions on it and look at it from the eyes of a 12-year-old. And it's just, it's like watching a Disney cartoon or anything else. If you step away from being an adult, you can connect with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, I mean, we can do this with, you know, the original King Kong. We can do this with Harry Housen's films. We can do this with, you know, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can we can just step away from ourselves for a moment and suddenly latch into that twelve-year-old that is still within all of us. And once you do that, you know, it's like then then you can accept it for what it is. You know, it's not anything more or anything less. It's just what it is. It's just pure escapism. Mm. And when you look at it that way, it's like it becomes a lot easier. It, it, it's not this bitter pill that you that a lot of people claim that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I still remember Roger Ebert's review of uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the 80s or the 90s version of Gamera, mm-hmm. uh, Ga- you know, uh, Guardian of the Universe. And, you know, I mean, he called it a guilty pleasure, but he still, you know, adored this film. Because again, he's you know using the adage that it was old school. It was very hands-on filmmaking, and he was using the the men in suits and the miniatures and all that. But what he did say in in his review was that the story had a certain level of 
thought to it that was that he found unique and very very charming hmm. and it's just like now that is you know that's somebody who has stepped away you know that basically latched into that 12 year old again yeah. and you know when they did the re-release of the Japanese version of you know when they re-released Gojira you know for the anniversary you know he went out and reviewed that and he gave it you know a modicum review you know really? he could yeah he couldn't tap into it you know and again you know it's just it's just one of those things it's like you know, okay it's a black and white film it's very somber and he couldn't tap into that 12 year old but mm. Gamera since it was fairly recent fairly new and it was in you know vivid color there's a psychological you know turn that you go through it's like you know Gamera just has this you know it had that sense of fantasy right from the get-go and it just drew you into the story uh the original Gojira is a much more somber piece and it was a you know a film of its time yeah uh you know i mean the acting style is entirely different from what is performed now and so it doesn't speak to the same it doesn't speak today's to to today's audience the way it did back in the 50s so you know i can i can understand his review it's coming you know it's coming 50 years too late yeah yeah it's a very valid <laughs> uh, it's a very valid point to to make as a as a critic um to um, well, I don't know if he specifically spoke of not being able to connect to it because it was a, a different movie from a different era. But uh, but if you hear that argument when when showing people the original uh, Gojira, uh, you certainly can understand it. But um, mm. but but uh, you you won't find a better movie. Uh, well, well no. it can, but uh, it's still a marvelously affecting movie, and I I Absolutely. still I still. I'm a bit haunted to this day uh, in the latter sections of the film where where's the with the choir singing in the church or the big assembly hall and it's just so incredibly yes. uh, uh, it's not melodramatic it's just yes. incredibly tragic and affecting and uh, it just gets to you uh, oh uh, abso- absolutely I mean I mean just the, I mean the original Japanese version I mean the whole relationship between Emiko uh, and Surazawa and her betrothed yeah. it's like there's it's it's remarkably poignant you know it's just it's just i mean it's i mean it's it's a classic romantic triangle you know but again as like i mean you know it's like again you're being indoctrinated into this culture it's like well she's been promised to this man (laughs) it's like so how do you break that yeah i was like well you know i admire you i adore you but i am in love with him (laughs) you know so it's like oh wow you know it's like i mean that that has a a, you know a depth and weight that we're not accustomed here in the west yeah so again, and, you, know, it, you know, it's that cultural separation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to look at the Gamera movies. I think there's a be uh, some DVDs of it out there. But uh, to oh. to see uh, a filmmaker, uh, I don't have his name uh, <coughs> right now, but uh, a filmmaker doing a '90s movie, tapping into a past era, but still, you know, not not desperately wanting to be in the past era, you know, adapting it for a new audience, a new era, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like, and if, if, if he does a mar- marvelous job of that, then uh, all, you know, could be admired for for quite some time by me, so. Uh, the, th- the three films that that director did in the Gamera series are just remarkable. Uh, Gamera Guardian of the Universe is just a fun programmer. Uh, no, t- no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's just mm-hmm. a fun programmer. Uh, the the direct sequel to that, which was called uh, Gamera versus Le- or Gamera or uh, the Event of Legion, uh, my review on that was like, it's as if John Woo directed a monster movie. 
Oh, wow. Or a kaiju film. I mean, it has that level of energy and just kinetic thrust. I mean, from start to finish, it's just like bam, 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 bam. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a remarkable film. I mean, the entire, I mean, there's actually a scene in that that seems to be almost an homage to John Woo. And it's a scene where the, uh, the insect creature uh, Legion in its full form has erupted you know, in the middle of the metropolis and Gamera's flying in from, you know, from the south and you know, then tucks in his flames and props out his, his legs and then lands and is sliding along the ground <laughs> and f- shooting off fireballs at the creature as he's sliding around it. <laughs> and it's like, and you just sit there and just go, oh my God, it's like Gamera is Chow Yun-Fat. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and it's just like, I mean, I saw that on the big screen. It's just like, son of a you know, it's like, ah, oh. yeah, up out of my chair. It's like, yes. <laughs> was, uh, what, what, were these productions uh, Toho, by any chance? No, uh, they were actually uh, Dei, uh, Dei Productions, uh, really? Toho District. But yeah, they were independent productions through Dei. Uh, Dei actually started back up to do the series, you know, you know, started in production again. Wow. So I was like, that was what was so remarkable about it. It's like, and they had no connection to the original series, which right. was, you know, just that much more exciting. I mean, they completely uh, redid the myth of uh, of Gamera, and it was just like just remarkable films. I mean, if you haven't seen them, you have to. Mm. No two ways about it. I mean, they are probably the best, uh, you know, just the best uh, kaiju films that have been, ever been made. No two ways about it. And uh, that's from a later. Era in the old kaiju uh, kaiju timeline, but uh, so w- yes. what era of monster movies or kaiju would you deem to be the most creative and exciting? Uh, I'd say it? for me, the the most creative period was definitely from you know from uh, again the original Godzilla 1954 on to 1966. Right, it was like it was right uh, at the you know, right after Monster Zero that. You know, budgetary concerns and politics and whatever else took its toll on the series. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, at that, you know, as like with Japanese television, there was such an influx of all of the sci-fi and you know the the hentai, uh, you know, the superhero stuff and all of this that was going on on television that it really, to me, it sort of watered down uh, the genre. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> and of course, you know, when Toho brought the series back in the '80s and the '90s. Uh, to me, right after uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidra, they ran out of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they just kept recycling the same things over and over again. Uh, what irritated me with, with, the, with that series of films uh, was that all of Godzilla's opponents after Mothra all basically were clones of Godzilla. Godzilla, you had Mecha Godzilla, uh, you had uh, De- Destroyer, and they were all basically variations of Godzilla. And it's just like to me, it just kept diminishing what Godzilla was. You know, because like Godzilla was supposed to be this huge, imposing creature, and then you've got you know the baby Godzilla, teenage Godzilla, and you know, the robot Godzilla, and you've got Mecha Godzilla, you know, and all of these other creatures that resemble him, mm-hmm. and it just diminished his potency and his power. <laughs> did did they uh, was it therefore during this era 80s 90s that they um, started to make these uh, clones of Godzilla more frequently because there there the, there wasn't <laughs> Mecha uh, Mecha at least in the 70s in the or 70s 60s. Yeah. but 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 and just like a brief appearance and and not in 
frequent movies uh, over and over again. Yeah, th there was like you know two films that were you know at the end of the original series. Uh, Jun Fukuda did the uh, original Godzilla versus the you know Mecha Godzilla, and then uh, Honda did his swan song with uh, uh, Terror of Mecha Godzilla or Mecha Godzilla's Counterattack. Right, and uh, Jun Fukuda's you know directing style always irritated me. I mean, you know, it's like he always you know. Always favoring the handheld camera, you know, he was just like he was one of those program directors mm -hmm. that would you know grab the camera, run with it, and get the shot and get it done. You know, I just like you know, I always looked at him as like okay, he was he was a, a two take director. Right. You know, get two takes, get it done in the can, out of here. And so, a lot of his films are just very very helter skelter like that. And the monster scenes, uh, again, uh, you know, budget constraints and all that in there. I mean. Uh, all of the films that he did, you know, you had uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Megalon, and Mechagodzilla. Uh, in uh, Godzilla vs. Uh, Gigan, they used the same suit that had been used in uh, Smog Monster and Destroy All Monsters. And that suit was in such disrepair <laughs> that, you know, that you're just watching that film and you're actually watching, there are certain shots in the film where you're actually seeing his scales are starting to fall off. Oh, my. <laughs> I mean, there, yeah, there are close-ups of Godzilla's leg where you say, hey, wait, that, that bit of, you know, roughness, his, it just fell off there, you know. And, and he therefore so, imposed this on the special effects direction, uh, therefore, yeah. to get it done, the two-take uh, sure. deal. <laughs> of course, you know, and then of course, then they brought in the new suit in, uh, you know, in Godzilla versus Megalon, and again, uh, the suit was not constructed up to the same level of the earlier suits. The budget was not there, and Godzilla took on that Muppet look that mm -hmm. you know everybody said, you know, the Muppet Godzilla, <laughs> and that suit was used again and again. It was used, you know, again introduced in. Uh, in you know Megalon, and then it was used in the the TV series Zone Hunter, and then they brought it back for Mecha Godzilla, and then for Mecha Godzilla's counterattack. By Mecha Godzilla's counterattack, that suit was in such bad shape. That's <laughs> just like you know they literally burned it up <laughs> in, in the one sequence where Mecha Godzilla basically fires his entire arsenal on him, and the suit literally caught fire. Completely by accident, but caught fire. And the you know the poor stuntman. Uh, it wasn't uh, uh, Nakajima. I can't remember the stuntman that played Godzilla in that. But you know he, he was literally engulfed in flame as he's running through the miniature set. <laughs> like, uh, I, 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 I think it's this great shot in. I think it's it's a Ghidorah of the Freedom Monster Godzilla versus Mothra, where where the suit actually. Uh, yes, catches fire, uh, and it looks yeah. like an accident, but it still looks yes. cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's during the uh, the napalm charges in Godzilla versus Mothra, and that's yeah, it's just it's just a quick shot, you know, where it's like you know that that gasoline charge basically, and <laughs> I think it wasn't gasoline. I think they were actually using not gasoline. I think they were using a combination like uh, propane and uh, you know isopropyl is what they use for the explosions. And so it's like you just see, you know, the the head and neck just slightly catch fire and then extinguishes, you know, the fuel dissipated. So but it's like it's just like one of those moments you go, "Damn," you know? It just it just catches you back cuz suddenly you get a little bit of, you know, unexpected realism mm. in that. That's like, "Oh, lord." And, and that still looks amazing to me. I mean, oh, it yeah. almost looks like, "Wow, they planned that really well." But wait a minute. Yeah. Can you yeah. really plan that well? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't care how well you plan something. You can have all of the proper, you know, pyrotechnic gear out there on the planet. It's like as soon as somebody's face goes on fire, it's an accident. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, as a minor side uh, because I just thought of it. Uh, did you ever have any uh, anything against Godzilla being turned into a hero or uh, and something less menacing? <laughs> uh, to be honest, only on a film by film basis. Right. Uh, I mean, in Destroy All Monsters, didn't have a problem with it because it worked within the context of that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, but when it you know by with Smog Monster, yeah, I mean that was again that was a children's film that was aimed specifically at eight and ten, you know, eight to ten year olds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and from that moment on, it's just like you know, Godzilla just became this superhero, and to me that it really, really diminished uh, the potency and and you know the the legend of that character. It's like it turned him into, for for lack of a better word, a buffoon. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean they you know they became live action cartoons. That's why everybody has a certain disdain for this for the '70s series, right. and that's just because they really. I mean, you know, the box office in Japan was going down. International sales were not moving, mm. and and this just shows you know this this uh, old school thinking, you know, on the studio's part is that instead of going backward, they kept trying to make the films younger. I mean, as if they were, you know, like they were competing against the Gamera series at the time that were also becoming more and more juvenile. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, you had the influx of all the TV series and all of that cartoonish stuff that was going on. And so they figured that's what the public wanted. And no, they, you know, they just became more and more bored with it than anything else. It's like, you know, why should I see the silliness and, you know, pay my four dollars here when I can see it at home for nothing? <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. And, you know, so that that became, you know, the big problem there. Uh, I was thinking uh, we were talking about uh, the uh, the new uh well, basically, the second series of Godzilla movies, starting with the '84 production, and uh, yes. <coughs> I guess my first question is: Did because I, I don't remember much from the '84 movie. I have it on tape somewhere. But did that series go back to trying to make uh, Godzilla a menacing character again? It uh, did for the first again. Uh, that that first film, you know, which was you know uh, the rebirth of Godzilla. Uh, the U.S. title was Godzilla 1985. Uh, the original Japanese version did. Uh, I think it did an all right job of it. Uh, unfortunately, the problem I have with that film is that it was, they didn't really have any original ideas. They didn't really know what to do with it. I mean, there were some great ideas in the film, but then they, you know, the, the, you know, the aspect of like, okay, well, we can use radio waves to lead Godzilla away. And, you know, just all of these ideas that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, going back to Bird Eye Gordon's, you know, uh, beginning of the end with the giant locust and that kind of stuff. And there was some great stuff in it. I mean, it brought up the concept, finally, that Godzilla lived on nuclear energy. That was mm-hmm. his food source. Right. And so that was interesting. And, you know, there was a lot of great stuff in that. Uh, the whole promotion that Toho did with that film with their, you know, their uh, robotic Godzilla... That was fine, but I still think the robotic Godzilla was about as effective, uh, about as effective as Dino De Laurentiis' uh, robotic Kong. Uh-huh. Uh, it just it had no character, it had no personality. It was just a stiff robotic beast, and that even came through in the man in suit action. It's just like you just really didn't connect with that creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, uh, when they finally came up with the sequel several years later. Of uh, you know, Violante, mm-hmm. and that was just like uh, a remarkable, remarkable film, and just com- 
completely caught me off guard in that uh, they had, ta- you know, the, the writer-director, uh, Kazumi Omori, basically tried to completely reinvent that, uh, that entire mythology of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And and just and came up. It was like to me. I was just sitting there, like, my God. I mean, it's like it was the first Godzilla film that I can recall that actually had this overt political and espionage aspect to it. Wow. I mean, more so than any of the others. I mean, this was you know this was dealing on a global level, because I mean you had these you know you know, you had these you know this mythical Middle Eastern country that's doing you know gene splicing with Godzilla cells and all this, and then you had all these other various factions that were involved in this, and. And it was also the first Godzilla film that dealt with the aspect of spirituality, other than the the King Caesar character in uh, uh, Mechagodzilla mm-hmm. back in '74, and that you had Biollante, which basically, in essence, carried the soul of the scientist's daughter who had passed away. Oh. And so it's like, I mean, they didn't go into a lot of detail or depth on that, but it's like, oh my lord, you know, it's like there was something that was slightly different, and so. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that film. And I was like so disappointed that Miramax never released it theatrically. They should have. They should have. I, I, you know, I cannot. I've met Henry Weinstein, and it's just like I actually railed on. Why didn't you release that? And it's just, we couldn't get any theaters to book it. <laughs> it's like, you dumbass. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, come on. <laughs> Did uh, th- therefore this uh, new era of movies have a certain value at, at least that one, uh, but but that... uh, but 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 co- compared to the latest era, I guess the post millennium era of yeah. movies, uh, what do you think well, of that? The, the post the post era, uh, I have to give great props because you know when they released uh, you know the Godzilla Millennium theatrically here in the U.S. and and across Europe, uh, that was that was. That was just a thrill to actually, you know, see the original Godzilla back up on the big screen, mm-hmm. and and that you know, I I can't praise Columbia enough for I mean the bravery in doing that, I mean you know I mean they'd taken such a beating on their American remake, and yeah. and then to, and then to go out and to I mean here in the states they released Godzilla Millennium or Godzilla 2000 in 3,000 theaters, wow. <laughs> you know I mean it's just like wow I mean that that's that's a huge release, you know. And even though the film only did like six, you know, 36 million total box office, I mean, it's still the best performing Godzilla film theatrically. <laughs> Foreign film, yeah. 36 million exactly. sounds incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I mean, it, it, it pretty much matched uh, Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah. You know, as like, although Jackie's 36 million came in his first weekend. Wow, <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, but it's like, but still, I mean, for a Godzilla film, remarkable box office. Remarkable box office. And, you know, the problem with that series is that right after uh, uh, right after the initial sequel, which was you know Godzilla versus uh, uh, Ogre, they ran out of ideas, really? and they and they just you know and that's just it. Then you know they they brought Mothra back, they brought Mechagodzilla back, and they really had nowhere to go. You know they just kept grabbing ideas from all of the earlier films and trying to. Stick them together like you know. With, you know, you had like two sets of puzzles, and all the pieces have been mixed together, mm-hmm. and so you're trying to fit whatever you could, whatever and where. And it's like, and to me, it was just they were just like haphazardly written. I mean, there were some nice things in in each film, but it's like they just didn't seem like the, the studio or the filmmakers were really behind it. 
then when you get to okay I, I I'm not very familiar with Japanese directors so the only one I recognized uh, out of the directors that did <coughs> the, did the movies uh, in the new millennium uh, was mm -hmm. the guy who did uh, Godzilla Final Wars uh, Kitamura yeah. and and obviously yeah. as you know hot director at that time versus uh, uh, Zumi, Sky High, and, yes. uh, and now Midnight yeah. Me and now Midnight Me Train. But uh, yeah. what's your take on hi him See, doing a Godzilla movie? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was incredibly disappointed with Final Wars. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, I had high hopes for it and all this, and the problem I had with this was that again, everything is borrowed from American hits. We had The Matrix. Uh, we had uh, again. Uh, uh, Tomb Raiders. Uh, we had all of this American influence in there. We had you know, references to the X-Men hmm. and just all of the silliness there. And it's like the story is so simple and it could have been so compacted and he just kept throwing all of these, you know, useless references, you know, in there and just all of the stuff. And it just got busier and busier. Uh, and, you know, I, the biggest problem I had with that was the, uh, uh, Katsuki uh, Kitamura, who played the controller of Planet X. Yeah. Uh, that performance is just so cartoonishly over the top. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, you know, I knew that stupid lizard, you know, that tuna-eating lizard was good for nothing. It's like, and just, you know, all of these stupid asides, it's just like, to me, it, it, you know, it didn't have the weight that, uh, that the last Godzilla film should have had, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, you know, when you bring out, you know, all of the, you know, and he talks about how all of the, 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 uh, suitmation stuff, they'd redesign the suit so that all the monsters could be faster and quicker and all that. And it's just like, when I'm watching Godzilla playing soccer, it's just like, you know, I'm going back to Jun Fukuda territory, you know, and it's just like, and it's just like, you know, it's just, no, I want the king of the monsters, you know, yeah. it's like, that's, and that's what I was missing there. I didn't see it. And it's just like, okay, well, let's bring, let's bring, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the battleship cruiser, let's bring that in. Let's bring in Manda. Uh, let's bring in this and let's bring in every, you know, useless monster that we could possibly bring in. Uh, I mean, the only monster that actually worked to an extent was Angulus and they did nothing with him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, Rodan comes in, and again, uh, we talk, I talked about this earlier. It's like that inherent racism. Uh, we have, you know, Rodan in New York City, and then we've got suddenly we've got you know, Huggy Bear. <laughs> you know, you know, we've got a black pimp with you know the rolled coat and all this talking to the cop, and they're speaking some sort of slang that is not slang that we're familiar with here. <laughs> you know, but it's like some Japanese cartoon variation of ethnic slang. And it's just like, I mean, that was just like insufferably, you know, not not even insensitive. It was just insufferably dumb, you uh -huh. know. And it's just, you know, there was just so much in that film. And it's just, to me, it's like, it's like uh, uh, the, you know, director Kimi, uh, uh, Kitamura was just like, you know, constantly winking at the audience. Mm -hmm. like, I'm making a Godzilla film. I'm making a Godzilla film. And it's like, you know. I, I, you know, I mean, yeah, he's got this this hot overview and everything else, and it's like me personally, I didn't like Versus. I I thought Versus was incredibly sloppy. You know, mm. it's just like you know, it's just like to me, it was like 
you know, some of the things that uh, Brad Piper has done, his direct-to-video stuff. It's just, get the shot, get the shot, get the shot. Let's, okay, let's throw some more slime or gore or whatever else we can into the scene. Mm. Uh, versus the fight scenes didn't do anything for me. I thought they were sloppily choreographed. Uh, you know, it's like the story just didn't carry any real resonance with me, you know. Uh, his American film, uh, Midnight Meat Train. There's a couple of moments where that fission works, but again, he goes so far over the top hmm. that it just like it it kills the effect. It's like he doesn't know when to turn it off. Right. And that's the big problem I had with uh, Final Wars. It's just like, I mean, you know, you introduced Baby Godzilla for what reason? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just. And you know, and you know, all of these other creatures, and they come in for their cameo, and they're killed off. And you know, every Godzilla scene lasted like thirty seconds. Wow. You know, and it's just like bang, 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 get it out there. And it's just like, you know, if I wanted to watch something this quick, I'd be watching the WWF. You yeah. know, I mean that that was the level of drama that was involved in that, and it just it just didn't play. You know, and that, that's why I really, really dislike that film. It's like I, I only, I think that's probably my least favorite Godzilla film. Wow, it's uh, <coughs> we 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 mentioned uh, uh, in passing, talking with the other guests, that uh, going back a little bit to Godzilla '85 movie that uh, they brought back Raymond Burr, and yes. uh, not being familiar myself at to what extent they rearranged the American version of it. Could you elaborate a little bit uh, on uh, that? Godzilla 1985 was a was just one of the most embarrassing paste jobs I think has ever been done. Uh, it's just it was just sloppy from the get go. I mean, uh, R.J. Kaiser, uh, who was the director on that, uh, he basically took the project away. It was I'm trying to remember uh, the director that was supposed to do it. And I can't think of it right now. Uh, he was the guy who did a film called Hell Comes to Frogtown. Oh, and, <laughs> that and, guy. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was supposed to be the director on it, okay? So, and, you know, again, uh, you know, it's just, uh, they just didn't get it. You know, I mean, they threw so much jokes. They got all this funding from Dr. Pepper. And so you got the Pentagon with a Dr. Pepper vending machine in the friggin' <laughs> hallway. Uh and just you know all of the silly stuff you've got characters that are just it was the it was the whole uh you know that one-liner aspect of writing where everybody has to have a smart aleck or you know catchy one-liner mm. it's like i you know it's like we're this uh, lieutenant in the middle of the control room is wait hey, destroyed a nuclear sub i say put a uniform on him and enlist him it's like <laughs> you know, and this and this kind of you know this kind of silly stuff yeah. you know it's just like you know i mean it's deadening and Raymond Burr is trying to play his character straight and to the point. But the problem is, is that he's never integrated into the story. Right. He's in the Pentagon and everybody's watching it on the big screen. And he's just distant and separated from it. And, you know, he comes up with his, you know, his little wise, you know, Mr. Miyagi moments. And it's just like it's it just rings false. Uh, the filmmakers did not believe in the project. You know, they had a great exploitation stuff. But their attempt to Americanize it was not to bring it up, but was to bring it down to, uh, you know, to Saturday morning cartoon level. Mm. And that's what they wound up doing. And, of course, you know, the other thing that irritated me is that they changed the whole uh, 
plot line on it in that instead of the in the original Japanese version, the Russians basically trying to stop the accidental detonation of the missiles. Mm -hmm. In the American version, they refilmed the scene that actually had the Russians setting off the missile. Oh. And so again, so again, you had this whole red baiting anti-communist thing that was you know rampant at the time with Rambo and all of those films. So it was just, I, you know, it's just it's one of those things like okay, well here's the big thing that America, you know, this is what we talked about with uh, with Gigantus is like mm -hmm. and Godzilla is like you know they didn't have this thing that you know what are American you know American audiences into what will they like and all this. And then you have these hack guys at New World that are saying, hey, look, this is what's hot now. Let's throw this in. Look, at this is hot now. Let's bring this in. And so, and so Godzilla 1985 becomes this hodgepodge of just really, really weak and bad ideas. So the American version is a complete abysmal disaster. Is it, uh, <laughs> no, is it yeah. a, a completely... Uh, yeah. Is it more lighthearted than the Japanese version? Uh, it it, it is... It, the thing is, is that I wouldn't call it lighthearted. Uh, it's because, it, I mean, there are scenes of comedy, but it still has, you know, the Japanese footage that is dramatic and everything else. Huh. And they've done some recutting on it that sort of like pumps up the action, but it really pumps up the action to no good advantage. Mm. Because, it's, you know, it's like they'll come to the big set piece and then they'll cut away to the American footage, which stops the film dead in its tracks. Uh. You know, and so it's just like I mean, you've got this film that is always like it's hiccuping its way along for you know for ninety <laughs> minutes. You know, it just it really just doesn't play well at all. Mm. Yeah, and of course, and then it's uh, it's probably I mean the Japanese version, the ending was a little maudlin and all this, and the American version amped that up <clears throat> so much. You know, with Raymond Burr's narration over Godzilla falling into the volcanic pit, mm. it amped it up so much, and it became so false. And just and so uh, contradictive to everything else these guys had written before, you know, for the American version that it's just like it just it just seemed like they were, you know, it just seemed like this huge thumb of the, thumb and you know thumbing of the nose to uh, fans of the series. Is there a um, version available that is the uncut Japanese version, but uh, with an English dub or what? Did Toho provide such? Uh, I think there is from uh, Hong Kong. I think they did release the film in Hong Kong on on. D I know they did on VCD, right? And it, it does have an English dub. I think uh, the English version of it is uh, the Return of Godzilla, right? But uh, you know, I don't know that uh, that it's been released anywhere else in the in you know Western states. I right, don't right. believe so yet. Uh, I think we're pretty much stuck with the Raymond Ver Raymond Burr version until <laughs> uh, until those prints deteriorate, fade away. <laughs> praying, praying. Uh, finger, mm. Fingers, eyes, and small intestines crossed. <laughs> um, now uh, I'd like to talk a little about how it culturally has affected uh, other countries in the world. I mean, you've spoken about how, how it affected um, America when the first... Uh, movies were shown uh, in the cinemas and TV and such, but uh, uh, do, do, do you know if there was a wave of American-produced big monster flicks or a wave elsewhere of big monster flicks that followed in the wake of uh, Godzilla? We touched upon the, the Thai one and others, but uh, yeah. and, and any more distinctive waves, any distinctive productions to talk of? There, 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 was, there were a few. Of course, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, William Lor uh, 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 Eugene Laurie uh, and his film, Gorgo, 
probably the, the best example of that. And that was his uh, direct response to Godzilla. And everybody looks upon that film as just like probably being the best Western kaiju film that has ever been made. And for good reason. I mean, the film works remarkably well. And it's got a certain amount of drama. It's got great pathos and all that. And let's face it, Gorgo is just such a unique and intriguing creature. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were other films in that. Uh, probably the best example of bad cinema is probably the, uh, you know, sorry to throw it at your countryside, but of course, Reptilicus. Sorry to bring that up. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that marvelous uh, Sid Pink film, uh, you know, it's just like, Again, it was you know giant monster movie, and the budget was not there to cover it. But have to give Sid Pink credit in that he got the entire government of, of you know of of uh, Finland or wherever of Copenhagen to basically give their military <laughs> expertise to this project wow. and get thousands of people to run across the you know the bridge as it's opening and got some people just to dive into the water. <laughs> <laughs> For a dollar, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, ride your bike over this as the bridge opens. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just—I mean, Reptilicus is just hilarious. I mean, you know, it's like that's—that's that's, everybody holds that in great disdain. Mm. You know, I mean, no, no two ways about it. I mean, it's just—it's just a mediocre film to begin with. But the thing is, is that it's still got a soft spot, you know, in our hearts here in the West because it is so bad, mm. and. The hilarious thing is, is that in the original uh, European version, you know, Reptilicus is just this creature roaming around. The American version, uh, American International decided, you know what, we need to make this a little bit more Japanese-like. So let's have, <laughs> let's have Reptilicus spit out an acid slime. So they added these, you know, these horrible. Uh, superimposed graphics of Reptilicus spitting out this acid slime and it would always, you know, fly at the camera, hit the camera, and then slide down and then they'd cut to the next scene. Oh. It just became, you know, it just became like this title card wipe. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, like oh, Reptilicus that's a spit, gloop, and then cut to the next scene. You know, it's just like and you'd never see a, the effect of the slime on anything. You know, they just <laughs> there it is, he spits out this acid slime. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, didn't do anything in the film. It's like nobody got hit by any slime. Nobody was burnt <laughs> up by any slime. But you know, he's spritzing it away like a seltzer bottle out of a Three Stooges short. <laughs> uh, as far as giant monster films, they're really not a hell of a lot. I mean, you know, some you know countries would do it. I mean, you know, Korea naturally would do a few. I mean, you you had the you know uh, you know their uh, Yongari, you know that that film, and then of course. Uh, uh, the absolutely ridiculous remake of that <laughs> that came out. Uh, of course, recently we had Dragon Wars, yeah. which was you know, just like incredible. I mean, marvelous visual effects, story. What the hell was that? You know, as <laughs> I, I I look at that film and it's like I try I try to come up with an equivalent for that, and it's like, and I always try to equate something to food. So I look <laughs> at Dragon Wars as like spaghetti, and that it's just this big mess on a plate, and you can't make heads or tails of where it starts and where it ends. <laughs> That's Dragon Wars to me. So. Well, I'll, I'll throw a little plug out there right now. I'm actually working with a, a group of uh, young filmmakers, and we're actually doing a uh, a fan-based project. Uh, there's 
no uh, <laughs> no connection to the actual producers, but we're actually doing a short film, a prequel to the video game of uh, Uncharted, Drake's Fortune. It's going to be live action, and we've got a lot of visuals that we're working on on that. Uh, we're hoping to have that done by uh, February of this year, and it's going to be uh, made by fans for fans, or you know, it'll be available for download online for free. And uh, you know, we're just hoping to do it, and we hope that everybody enjoys it. It's going to be a fun project. And and I and I can say as a fan of, I like the first game quite a bit. So uh, yeah, and uh, they they just got it right. Uh, Naughty yeah. Dog, I think, did a smashing yes. job on that. So uh, yeah, uh, that's certainly interesting to me to yeah. to find out more. I don't know if Naughty Dog ever plans to go back, but. Uh, uh, go backwards, but uh, so nope. far no. They they're going yep. forwards. Yep, they're going forwards. Uh, we've we've talked to them and uh, we've gotten their unofficial blessing. I guess is the oh, way to really? put it. Uh, so you know they said uh, you know we can't authorize it and all that, but go ahead and do it, and we'd love to see it when it's done. So you know we, you know, like I said, uh, the young man who has uh, basically put you know been putting this together, he's become close friends with all the producers over there, and they invited him to Comic Con and. Uh, you know, it had him meet the uh, the cast and crew uh, after the show. So it's like, yeah. So it's like, it's a uh, it's a go. You know, we've got you know, we've got a little bit of funding. You know, we're like we're doing this all basically for no money. So we're just pulling in favors and everything else. But we've got a good looking. We've got a good script. We've got uh, some really really talented actors, and we've got a great fight choreographer involved, who you may know. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, yeah, of course, John Crane has jumped on board. He's going to help us with this. And uh, we just got a good staff and some good people. So we're, you know, we're hoping to have, a, you know, a fun little uh, hour-long feature for everybody to enjoy. So, Any any website where you're posting these updates or it's Facebook? Um, yeah, basically just uh, we're keeping it under, you know, on the cuff right now, although we will have a teaser trailer up in about two weeks on YouTube. And you can pretty much find that on uh if I can remember, it's, uh, if you go to YouTube, you can pretty much look that up on uh, W Dog W D O G G. Ah, <laughs> you know, and you can if you go to YouTube and look that up, you'll find their page. And you know, we've got uh, you know we've got uh, uh, the young man's first uh, little horror film that I produced, and it's his uh, like I said, it's his first short film. It's it's raw, it's rough. But it shows a remarkable talent for a young man. So, you know, I mean, he was uh, 15, 16 years old when he made it. So, wow. cut him some slack. But it's like, yeah, he came up, we did uh, some very, very cheap but effective visual effects, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So, uh, that, that little short film's called At Midnight. You can look that up, and I think you'll have fun with it. So, it's nothing, uh, it's nothing more, um, more that I respect than creativity and passion, especially passion for something. Uh, so, uh, it's uh, like. You know, it's like it's it's like what every you know. You go back to Joseph Campbell. You, you have to follow your bliss. Absolutely. If you're if if you're not happy with what you're doing, then you're doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. So, uh, well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, this is going to be fun for the listeners. I guarantee you that. And uh, thank you, Kenneth. Appreciate it. It's been fun for me too. Very good.